Welcome to AML Conversations 2018, sponsored by AML RightSource. AML RightSource is the leading firm solely focused on AML BSA and financial crimes compliance solutions. Information can be found on AMLRightSource.com. AML Conversations is a program designed for AML professionals and those interested in the field to hear what's happening in the government, private sector, and internationally. We're going to do interviews, panel discussions, and live programming. For our very first edition, we recorded an event last December at the Happy Dog Tavern in Cleveland, Ohio, where the Northern Ohio ACAMS chapter heard from former ACAMS Executive Vice President, John Byrne, who is also a member of our AML Right Source Board. You are about to hear John's discussion on possible changes in AML and issues being considered by the U.S. Congress. First, you will hear from Bill Cloninger, co-chair of the Northern Ohio ACAMS chapter, and then questions from the audience. Sit back and enjoy AML Conversations. Local Northern Ohio ACAMS chapter. And um, it looks like tonight we have an overwhelming group from AML Right Source. So thank you all for coming. And, and also, it goes with, without saying, but I, I must mention it uh, uh, Sean Watterson and uh, the Happy Dog here in uh, University Circle. Uh, one of the things that uh, those that have been coming to, to these sessions regularly already know is that prior to being uh, a bar owner, Sean was um, an investigator with the, the SEC and is basically one of us. And that's very unusual amongst bartenders and, and bar owners. So, so there, there you go. So this is all within the family. Uh, tonight, oh, uh, preview of coming attractions. We will have another AML Unplugged session the first Thursday in January, unless Case Western changes the date, which they have a habit of doing. So uh, just stay tuned. Uh, our next chapter major event is March 1st, and that will be at Case Western Reserve's Law School, and it will be, uh, the subject matter is uh, human trafficking, and it is in conjunction with the Case Western Human Trafficking Conference, so it should be a very exciting thing, and that's March 1st. Okay, so that, that's what's uh, on, on the schedule, and uh, tonight we are uh, very pleased, I am very pleased to uh, uh, introduce to you our uh, speaker for the night, uh, John Byrne. Uh, I've met John a, a couple of years ago. John, over the last three decades, has been the premier voice of our community in Washington. He has spoken uh, to, to Congress, to the Senate, and helped form legislation on our behalf. And um, 
He is, he is known worldwide for his advocacy of what we do. Um, he also, he recently uh, retired from ACAMS to devote more time to teaching and writing. He has a podcast and uh, writes, a, writes a blog. And uh, it's, a, it's a delight to have John here tonight. So here's John Byrne. So this is weird. I read a lot of books about comedians and um, how they got started, and I'm thinking about the improv in New York or Catch a Rising Star. You're three in the morning, you wait for your five minutes and hope you can get two or three people to laugh. I may not get you to laugh, but what I'd like to do is sort of give you some um, thoughts as we finish out this year and, and happy, of course, to take questions. Obviously, again, this is a little strange format. It's the first time I've spoken in a bar in quite a while. Um, and usually when we're doing that, we're yelling about sports teams, uh, which we won't do tonight because I'm sadly a New York Giants fan, and obviously the football season's been over for quite a bit, as we all know. Um, the Cleveland Browns fan. I want the Browns to win a couple games because I want the first pick in the draft. So, go Browns. Go Browns. A uh, couple things I want to just throw out there and then sort of see if there's any thoughts. And I also want to mention Sean uh, as well. Sean and I go way back. Uh, I think I met Sean. I probably met him when he was at the SEC with the Merrill Lynch after that. And you worked, and you worked at City. Yeah. And uh, Sean worked with uh, Rick Small, who I think many of you know. And uh, I never understood what went on in the broker-dealer world. And Sean was always so patient whenever I had an AML question regarding that. I really did appreciate that. Years ago, I came out here to speak at a conference and uh, connected with Sean, and he took me out, and he had just bought the Happy Dog, the other one where I was at at 6.15 this morning, <laughs> this afternoon. So I was there early, I promise. Uh, and he uh, brought me in there and then talked about some of the ideas he had for the for the city, what he wanted to do in terms of culturally, in terms of the entertainment area, uh, colleges and universities, and he's done that and more. And to me, that's really impressive stuff. So we should really thank Sean for what he's been able to do in Cleveland. You know? So Bill mentioned a couple things that I'm uh, pleased to still be working on. One of them that I did want to mention, it's not posted yet, but yesterday I uh, did sit down and do a podcast with uh, folks from Polaris. Polaris, the anti-human trafficking organization, and it's a pretty lengthy one. Typically, I try to do a 20, 25-minute podcast. We went on for almost 45 minutes because uh, I had two, two presenters, and they gave some really good information in a couple of areas that they want the financial sector to pay attention to. And so that will get posted Monday or Tuesday. But I'm so impressed with the commitment of that organization. There's 100 staff in Washington, and I guess it's, they have several other satellite offices and I think, as we all know, because the banking sector has been great, uh, the work that they have done working with financial institutions to try to figure out ways to track activity that could be indicated, indicators of trafficking, whether it's forced labor, sex trafficking, or, or what have you. But some of the things they found in their research is pretty amazing. 
they were formed back in 2003, uh, and they said they've had about 40,000 cases since then, which is obviously both uh, astronomical, uh, but they said it's just the tip of the iceberg. They said there's so many people that don't call, that don't call their hotline uh, for obvious reasons. So I got to say, in 2017, after doing this for 30 years, I am so impressed by what the financial sector has decided on its own is important to them. And I know many of you and your colleagues have worked really hard in different regions of the world, in different regions of the country to deal with this horrific act. So whenever I hear other bankers talk about why should we have to have compliance regarding money laundering, I get my backup because that ship has sailed. We have, we have an obligation, an ongoing obligation, and what you do does save lives, and that can't be overstated. That's an absolute truth, and that's something that still frustrates me when I talk to bankers that, that frankly bitch about burden and compliance. Yeah, some of that makes sense, and we can talk about some of that to try to improve it, but at the end of the day, this is just one area where you've done so much. Other areas that come to mind, uh, I, I was fortunate enough to get ACAMS to do some recognition and some awards over the time I was there. One of the awards that we did a couple of years ago was for a banker in New Hampshire that worked really hard with the New Hampshire legislature to get elder abuse statutes created in New Hampshire so that there could be more clear, focused prosecutions on those that prey on the elderly. <coughs> she did this in her spare time and uh, you know, did a lot of work both with legislators and with other bankers to, to sort of make sure there was a groundswell of support for that. So to me, that's, that's pretty incredible stuff. And that's also, again, way away from what we started in money laundering, which was just really about uh, drug trafficking and tax evasion. That's all it was for many, many years. Now it's so many other areas. Uh, the other thing that comes to mind is... Uh, just last week, I was able to, for the first time in all the years I've done this, testify before a House committee, but not be beholden to anybody. So I testified on my own behalf, as opposed to for an organization, for a financial institution, for a firm. And it was on a uh, series of legislative proposals that, you know, given this Congress, probably aren't going to go anywhere. But at least they finally put together something to look at the Bank Secrecy Act and all of the changes over time and see is there an opportunity to make some make these laws and regs a little more efficient, uh, a little more useful. If you go back and do the research, the laws were originally created in the 1970s uh, because they wanted to have a high degree, I think the, 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 the phrase is a high degree of effectiveness or usefulness for tracking organized crime and tax evasion. That's why these laws were theoretically created. And so it's been 30-plus years uh, since we've had these laws in place. And I can remember in the early days at the ABA, every two years during an election year, there'd be a massive 200-page bill on crime. And, all, and it would always have some provisions in there related to money laundering. It could be as simple as adding predicate offenses. It could be adding regulatory requirements, reporting requirements. But every two years from 1986 to 1984, there was a massive crime bill. Some passed, some didn't pass. After that, there was sort of a decline in focus, and then we had, of course, 9-11 and the U.S. Patriot response. 
So you have 30 years of different laws and regulations. So on the positive side, there are some members of Congress that are looking at this, or at least been asked to look at this by those of us on the outside. Is it time to look at it and try to make these laws more efficient and more useful? There's been a number of reports and studies in the past year. I'm sure some of you have looked at and read. There was one by the, the New York Clearinghouse uh, that came out in June that looked at some of these laws and regulations. There certainly have been a number of reports uh, regarding the collateral impact of these laws on things like de-risking and financial access. And there's also been, obviously, some other um, uh, advocacies regarding changing and adjusting the criminal laws, whether it be for asset forfeiture or something else. Anyway, at the end of the day, there's this large proposal before the House. There's not a similar provision in the Senate. And I just want to mention a couple of the themes that are in the bill. One, to me, that's particularly interesting and almost ironic is there's a proposal in there to raise the thresholds for cash reporting from $10,000 to $30,000. Now, those of you that, have, that both know me and have been involved in this know that we pushed this idea back in the late 90s and early 2000s. And we got hammered by law enforcement. Law enforcement said, you can't reduce or you can't uh, enhance the thresholds. We're going to lose all this valuable data. We looked at everything. And so we said, okay, uncle, we give up. You guys win. We're not going to push this. In 2017, I would argue, and there's some big banks here in the room, raising the threshold does nothing for your uh, systems today. Your systems already uh, are automated, very well advanced. So raising it from 10 to 30,000 just seems silly to me, right? So yeah. that was the proposal, um, one of the proposals. And I sat next to a guy, another panelist from a small bank. And he was pushing for this. He said, this would eliminate X amount of uh, CTRs. It would make us much more efficient, blah, 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 blah. Right. So I said, after he went, it was my turn for my five minutes. I said, in all due respect to my colleague here, that's not what I'm hearing. I'm hearing from the banks that raising it, you're still going to have to figure out what structuring is, right? You're still going to have to monitor transactions, all of that sort of thing. And... Uh, we've been there before we lost. So after the hearing was over, the guy looks at me and he says, oh, you know, as soon as you started, you you criticized me. And I said, did I criticize you or did I say, here's what I'm hearing? He goes, yeah, I guess that's a fair point. And I also said, you know, it's not, to me, it's not, the problem for Burden isn't the CTRs themselves, it's the exemption process, it's the regulators hammering the banks for mistakes. He goes, oh, yeah. He goes, yeah, I guess you're right. I said, who did your research, man? I mean, <laughs> I mean, seriously. So there's a member of Congress, and I was just telling Sean before this, the last time I testified was 2003. When some of you were in high school, I testified the last time. So it's been that long a period of time before uh, between AML testimony to deal with something this dramatic. Some member of Congress says, you know, I'm a businessman. I own a small business. I think CTR should be at sixty thousand. I might be willing to go to thirty thousand. So I'm thinking, all right, 
That's bad staff work. Clearly, this guy's got his staff doesn't know, haven't, haven't briefed him. That makes no sense to me. Um, so we still had some of the same responses from members that we had 15 years ago. In that they didn't didn't have a view, right? They were just making up their view as they heard the witnesses. So the CTR thing was one thing. The second one, which I thought was equally ludicrous, they wanted to raise the thresholds for SAR reporting to $10,000. And again, none of this is going to happen tomorrow, maybe it won't happen at all, but I thought it would be kind of interesting to talk about how some people are thinking. So think about suspicious activity reports, and a lot of you work on those, so you know that those are your views, your analysis of whether or not a particular transaction or series of transactions are indicative of a violation of law. Not necessarily what it is, but you're, you're analyzing it based on the type of customer and everything else. Why would you raise the threshold to $10,000 from $5,000? I would argue that many experts, a lot smarter than myself, have said, if you look at terrorist activity, they come in very low dollar amounts. You're going to lose a lot of it, 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 intelligence, a lot of data. That's part of it. And also, and again, I said this to my small bank panelists. I said, guys, aren't you hoping that law enforcement will actually look at your SAR so they'll do an investigation? So isn't part of what you're doing not just a compliance requirement, you actually want some reaction from law enforcement? They said, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. So uh, that, I think, is is ludicrous. That I don't know where that proposal came from, but I have a sneaking suspicion it came from the clearinghouse, and I don't know what they were thinking, because I know a lot of their members didn't agree with them, by the way. So that was, those were the first two proposals. There was a couple of other in, in there that I thought would be pretty interesting, and I'll reference that in a minute when I after I answer Bill's question. Yeah. Uh, to, just a, a comment from from my experience: the five thousand dollar threshold is not operable. If we see suspicious activity below that, we file a SAR anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. No, so, so that arguing about that amount is meaningless. Right. No, I agree. Yeah. I think there was a there was a lot of things. And, and by the way, I took an opportunity that sadly the clearinghouse didn't take, although many of their members called me and asked me to do this, uh, I took an opportunity to talk about one of the things that I think frustrates you more than anything else, and that's documenting that you didn't file a suspicious activity report, right? So right. the fact that an examiner would say to you, why didn't you file on X? And you say, well, our systems are this, this, and this, and that wasn't sufficient, that you had to file the proverbial no SAR SAR, as we know, is insane, right? But that, to me, is where a lot of the real burdens come, not on the, on the thresholds. Yes. The other thing I mentioned, to sort of make the point about regulatory overreach, how many of you remember, or how many of you had to deal with whether or not you file a, an ongoing, a lack of a better term, an ongoing SAR continuous activity? So you have to look at you look at activity, right? And every so often you go back and you file and you file a SAR. It's become the 90-day rule. But what I put in the testimony because I've been around a long time is back in 2000 when I was still with the Bankers Association, we asked FinCEN for an opinion. We said 
Now that we've had SARS for a couple of years, what do you do if you send a SAR in, there's no activity, no responsible law enforcement, but the activity is continuing? The answer in a 2000 uh, guidance says very clearly, as a rule of thumb, every three months, go back, and if the activity is continuing, you may want to consider filing a SAR. Not you have to, not it's a requirement, a rule of thumb. What does it become in 2017? It's a regulation, right? The 90-day rule. So that's the insanity that's causing a lot of your heartburn. It's not thresholds, and it's not some of the other things. So I, I pointed that out as well. And again, said to my friends at the clearinghouse, why didn't you guys talk about this? Because you know it would mean a lot coming from you, and got no answer. The other things that are in there that are actually sort of optimistic, um, there's a section in there that says they want the financial institutions to be encouraged to use new technology. So there's a section in the bill that would actually give institutions, and I'm paraphrasing, a pass if they use new technologies for either transaction monitoring, data analysis, or what have you. And so how that would work in real life, hard to articulate, but the fact that they have a provision in there that says we will encourage the use of technology and give, quote, a safe harbor for those that t uh, take advantage of new technology, that's a positive sign. Now, sadly, on our panel, uh, I agree with them a lot of the time, but Global Witness, which is a transparency organization that deals with issues like shell companies and everything else, and, and obviously they have, a, they have a view, they felt the safe harbor was too broad and would be uh, misused. I, I don't happen to agree, but it's not going to be that easy to pursue. But the fact that they put something in place that said that uh, encouraged banks to use technology, I think, is pretty important. There was another remark. Along that point, because I think, you know, it's, I'll call it a 500 word models, model, but why is CRAB, which the first two initials are actually credit risk? Why are they responsible for determining what is an appropriate AML model? Why is... CBRAT, I mean, I don't know if that got into it, because, you know, the whole technology, because talking about, you know, machine learning or whatever we have for alerts, they're taking a credit risk model methodology and applying it to what we do for AML monitoring. Do, I mean, can you talk about, like, or maybe a little bit, like, what we can do about that? To dissuade them from having that come out of that section of the bank? Yes. Well, but, I mean, using that type of uh, approach to, you know, applying it to AML. Right. I think everything's on the table in terms of uh, use of technology. So I think the way this the, this proposal was written, which as you can imagine, was pretty broad-based, sort of high level. My guess, educated guess, is it's going to be done in a regulatory uh uh, pro, you know, protocol, so we'll have the op have the opportunity to sort of steer them to certain things that currently work. So they didn't make a decision on how they were going to do that, but I think that's an opportunity. The uh, other the other section that was sort of brand new, and the concept, again, from a practical standpoint, I'm not sure how it would work, but it's interesting from, from my perspective. Um, they're offering what they're calling a no-action letter, so that you would be able to go to FinCEN and ask for an advisory opinion on a particular activity and, or a particular technology or whatever it might be, and you would get in response after the analysis 
a no-action letter from FinCEN that would be applicable to the banking agencies, meaning they couldn't come in and give you formal criticism for that particular action. Now, again, sounds great from a from a from a distance. Not sure how that would work. Not sure the banking agencies would want to give up that authority because they obviously also have safety and soundness uh, uh, oversight abilities. Whether or not they'd be willing to sign off on a no-action letter. The thing that I thought was interesting about it is uh, you'd have to pay for this. So <laughs> you would have to actually pay FinCEN a fee and they would process this no action letter. So I asked the logical question, uh, why? And they said it had to do with the typical answer you get from congressional staff. Well, it had to do with the budgeting process. In order for us to put this provision in here, we had to say that it would be paid for uh, by the uh, uh, those asking for the opinion. So the notion of getting protection, great. Paying for it, I guess it depends on what they're going to charge you for the opinion. But how it would work vis-a-vis -vis the regulators, who the heck knows, right? So, so that's in there as well. There's a number of other studies in there to look at SAR reporting, feedback, all the things that we constantly ask about in terms of more information. Um, but what I thought was uh, interesting about the uh, uh, the SAR reports that they want to see or the analysis. They said this, and again, those of you that uh, have been around a while will understand the point right away, others may not. They said they wanted to see a study of whether or not you should take the CTR and the SAR and put them on one form. Anybody remember the old CTR form with the suspicious transaction box? Yeah. <laughs> there are a few of us. So they already did that, didn't work, data was bad, so what do you do? So that just tells me something I think we all know. Nobody in that staff thinks anything started before they joined the staff. Research that. We don't do any research. So when they first approached me on this, I said, guys, this has been done, and we went to a SAR because that didn't work. Yeah, but we thought we would put it out there for an analysis. So whatever. The other uh, part of the bill is several others. The other one I'll just note and see if we have any comments about anything else. Um, they're, they do get one thing that we've been harping on for years, all of us, information sharing. So there's a provision in there that will change 314B to expand what you can share information between institutions on besides traditional money laundering and terrorist financing. So it would be what we consider to be the money laundering uh, infrastructure, which is basically all of, all the predicate offenses, and so anything from like we mentioned before, elder abuse, human trafficking, Medicare fraud, you name it, it would be something that would be shareable voluntarily, but shareable under 314B. Interestingly enough, that was this some of the questions that we got from the members, and they were freaking out about privacy. They said, "Well, we're very worried that this expands." too much information that can be shared between institutions. I politely said, uh, you know it's voluntary, right? And two, you got to register. Yeah, but you know, there's so much more here. But there's a process in place that's been in place since 2003. So I think that's a little ridiculous. But that, again, staff work. That's where the staff needs to do a much better job of understanding what the current environment is to see if you can expand it. But I think sharing information and 314B would make sense. I did raise this issue 
and I don't know if our big banks will be offended, but hear me out. <laughs> what I'm hearing from the small banks is a lot of times they'll go to you and ask on the 314B for some information, and you don't answer the phone. You don't respond. I don't mean the banks in this room necessarily, but a lot of the big banks, we can't be bothered. And the argument is, and you can respond, Bill, but the argument is you're asking us to do your work. I would take a kind of a nuanced view there. I don't think all the small banks are doing that, but that is a problem that a lot of small banks have indicated. Yeah, the, the, the problem with 314B, when you're going to a large bank, and uh, our bank is, is one of those, is that we don't respond quickly. There needs to be... Uh, a lessening of the burden of the paperwork so that we can just answer a phone call and, and still keep safe harbor but but increase the um, urgency <coughs> currency of communication between financial institutions if somebody ha is working a SAR is working a case and they need a piece of information at another institution and I've got that information, I should be able to pick up the phone and say, yeah, this is what I got. And also with law enforcement, if we're ever going to get ahead of the curve on interdicting uh, financial criminals, uh, if we're trying to maintain uh, a safe regulatory compliance environment, we're in the wrong game. All, all valid points, yes. Yeah, I, I think one of the other issues is the whole process of registering is kind of broken. I, if you have multiple entities that you're registering from a large bank, you can register one a day. Right. And so now you're trying to register, then you have one or two contact points. Well, they become the funnel point where everything has to flow through down before you can even get to that information. So I think that's the burden on the large banks. Um, you got 30 small banks coming to you, and how can you answer them all the time? So one of the things I think we should take advantage of is that several of the reports anticipated by this, uh, this bill would include uh, research on these sorts of things. And what I said several times throughout the hearing was, you can't do any of this without consulting, actively consulting the private sector. So, and, and our law enforcement stakeholders, because I think they they obviously have a view as well. So I think those are more than fair points. The the thing that I found interesting about the whole discussion about 314B, no discussion on 314A, right? And again, going back in time, I will tell you, 314A was something that we drafted and wrote. So the private sector wrote that. And what we expected was a two-way street. We wanted the government and the private sector, financial sector, to be able to share information in real time. Now, I will note that FinCEN two days ago, I think it was, put out a press release on some platform they're creating uh, in the hopes of sharing information with the uh, with the financial sector, uh, I think it was li limited to terrorism, I could be wrong, but it's something that seems sort of in that ballpark. But I will tell you that 314A was not put together the way we had hoped. Instead, as we all know, it was the government 
sending uh, information through to FinCEN, and then you all get the notice every couple of weeks that it's basically, here's a name, look it up. That was not what 314A was supposed to be. It was supposed to be, we get information into the government, and they would send us information back about trends, about typologies, case studies. Now, some of that does happen, to be fair, but it doesn't happen on a regular basis. So I was disappointed that that wasn't part of it, but also we're both early in the process, and we did we did mention it. So uh, as a whole, the, the legislation to me, the optimism is that they had a hearing. They had a hearing. They uh, they did talk about a number of these issues. It's clear that a lot of members need a lot more uh, education, and it's also understandable. To be fair, you know they're running back and forth between several hearings a week. You know they can't be experts in everything. This was also a joint hearing with the terrorist financing subcommittee and the financial services subcommittee. Uh, but I do think they need help on understanding privacy issues what currently is the law and regulation, and what is the real burdens that you face that if you had a chance that you would fix to make what we do more efficient. Because at the end of the day, what this is not about is compliance. What this is about is getting information in the hands of law enforcement so they can act quickly. That's why we have the Bank Secrecy Act. We don't have it so that you could get written up on the 91st day because you didn't file a continuing SAR for the 90-day rule that doesn't exist. That's not why we have these rules and regulations. I should also say another thing that I put in the testimony, which wasn't original with me, but some of the bankers said, again, Clearinghouse isn't going to do this, can you? And that is on the, I don't want to get too much in the weeds here, but on the FFIEC manual. So from this perspective, the manual, great concept, a lot of good information. I remember when it came out in 2005, we did road shows on this and said, all these different sections tell you what the uh, agencies are going to be looking for, but then what did it become? It became a rules-based document, right? So the examiners then said, well, it says on page 32, you got to do X. No, it doesn't. It tells you what you guys are going to be looking for. It doesn't say anywhere you have to do X. So we said in testimony that it's frustrating that the regulators are making sort of rule-based decisions during exams that are resulting in formal criticisms and sometimes penalties when that's not either the intent of the law regulation and it's certainly not uh, what it says on the face of it. So we mentioned that it's, it's in the record, what have you. Um, I will tell you that the Senate side is looking at enhancing the criminal statute, so they're not really looking at this. It's December. I did talk to the staff after the hearing and they said, as you would expect, this is a ongoing process. Uh, I was comforted by the fact there was legislation. I was concerned about some of the direction, and I was concerned about the lack of courage of some of my uh, AML professionals that sat with me at that panel because they had opportunities to say things and they didn't. I had that freedom because I don't work for anybody anymore, so I can tell, tell them what I thought. But the bottom line is, having done this for 30 years, it does need a review. Um, it is wrong to say, as some have said, that the system is broken. It's not broken. It's, it, you do some tweaks. You can make some changes. It's not broken. You have done a tremendous amount of excellent work going after all sorts of criminals with you know financial footprints throughout the world. And for anybody to suggest that that's not happening is, is dishonest and disingenuous. 
And as a quick political aside, I have a lot of good friends and have worked closely with ACAMS over the years in the FBI. And I believe it's disgusting that anybody would take on the FBI and suggest that that organization is in tatters, because it's not. It is, these are hardworking men and women that have done so much for this country and for all of us, and that offends me. So from an AML perspective, I'll say I'm real fortunate that I spent all that time at ACAMS where we represented everybody, and very comforted by the fact that all of you and your peers in law enforcement and regulatory side are all working hard. We just gotta figure out how to be more efficient. So I'm going to stop there and see if there's any other questions or issues or things you guys want to talk about or mention before you take your next beer. Mark. It's not illegal, but can you talk about your thoughts on cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and what we should be doing about that? It's not illegal. <laughs> I, you know, uh, I know law enforcement's looking hard at it, Mark, and I think... Um, what I'd like to see us do in the AML community is reach out more to those that are involved there and see what their systems, I don't know if you have what their systems and controls are, because uh, the anonymity concerns me, although there are ways around that, as we both know, right? So um, I think there's a danger in overreaction, but I think there's a danger in ignoring it. So again, I'm certainly no expert in that space, but I think what we've what we've seen, we've seen some people come to our, not just ours, but come to programs and and events to try to better understand AML. I think it's kind of up to us in our in our world to uh, to, to reach out, if, if you will. But I don't have any strong uh, notions about how we how we address that. How about yourself? You come, well, I mean, just in yeah. the past week, you've seen reporting that both Ukraine and Venezuela are now going to use it to circumvent sanctions. Right, right, right. So what are our friends in law enforcement and the policymakers doing? Right now, nothing. Nothing, right? Yeah. Bitcoin hit 19,000. Unbelievable. <laughs> I want to ask a show of hands how people have Bitcoin, but... <laughs> a couple do. A couple do. But it's a, it's, a, it's a very good point. I, I'm with you. I just think we can't ignore it. And I, I'd want to know as much as I could about this. And you know, I know Homeland Security is doing a lot of work in that space. I don't know about the FBI. Yeah. Uh, I know. I really think it's around just being more nimble and more um, into technologies and getting us so that we can start focusing on being faster pace. Right. The criminals utilize the technology today very well. And we're stuck with a lot of legacy systems, legacy thinking in some cases. Um, so I wouldn't say we're broken, but we've got some good opportunities for enhancement. Oh, no, I totally agree. I totally agree. I mean, I'm not suggesting at all we can't fix some things. I think those that just say, woe is me, which you're not doing, um, that's not the way to go here. I mean, the hyperbole that I saw last week was pretty ridiculous, to be, to be candid. And uh, I've been at the front of the parade saying we got to fix these laws and regs, but I've never said that it's broken. You know, yeah. to me that's that's kind of throwing up your hands. Which again, you're obviously you're not saying. Now the other the other thought I've had over the past months has really been around 
how do we get the grassroots of our communities engaged in changing their thinking? Uh, so the community around here no longer says, we're going to put up with the drug dealers on the corners and things like that. We're going to recognize that something has to be done and that you know, banks are doing something on the financial transactions. But what can I do? I know church groups do that. Um, they'll say, hey, you see the drug dealer on the corner? Let's call law enforcement. Let's, let's get that out there. I think there's kind of a disconnect between the community and the banks or financial institutions. And they think what we do is against the common person. But it's really not the common person. 99% out there that are doing things right, we want them. It's that 1% or slightly above that we're really looking for and want to make sure that they can't do their nefarious activities. Um, so thoughts on getting the our body to find ways of doing grassroots engagement and bringing a better PR, so to speak, to handing uh, money To summarize, for those who couldn't hear, um, how do you get the community to better understand what we do in the financial sector regarding money laundering and related activities so that there's not the disconnect that there appears to be. I, I would say the human trafficking space has been pretty amazing. What I've seen around the country is bankers working closely with their communities in, in local areas dealing with this horrific crime and talking about the financial part of it. This would be a good opportunity to throw out uh, an advocacy uh, event that's going to occur later next year in May or June. Polaris has told me that uh, one of the biggest problems they see is these illegal massage parlors throughout the country that will close down at a moment's notice when they think law enforcement's coming and then open up physically maybe in the same darn office. Uh, and part of that is the licensing requirements and the incorporation requirements in a given state or county. So they're going to do a massive, and I don't want to make this sound like it's not that much, because I think it is, a massive both letter writing and communication campaign with secretaries of state and local counties and saying, in effect, in your backyard, you're not doing the proper due diligence regarding licensing these entities, and they are fronts, massive fronts, for human trafficking. And what we've told Polaris is, we're all in. I, I can't speak for you guys, but I will. I'll say that I guarantee you the banks will be all in on that, and we can work on that together. So look for more information from us, April, May, June time frame. I think it'll be, uh, not I would say long overdue in a negative sense, but overdue. The data they have is astounding. It's astounding. And just as a you know, last quick aside I'll make, I live in Fairfax County, Virginia, which is a very affluent county outside of uh DC. We have a massive heroin problem. We have Jim Cox. Jim, yeah. Um, yeah, Jim has been here, so you've yeah. heard from Jim. Massive human trafficking. Jim Cox has told me, and I know he's talked to none of you guys, but virtually every nail salon is a front for either forced labor or sex trafficking in Fairfax County. So it is everywhere. And it and it's not just in certain pockets of the country or the, uh, or, or in you know in cities, what have you. But anyway. The, uh, the illegal massage parlor effort, you're going to hear a lot more about that, and I think that's a perfect example where we can work together. Okay. 
Any other questions or things you want to discuss? Well, with that, I've got my, my one silver bullet question. And that is... Okay, Tonto. <laughs> that is, given all of your regulatory and legislative experience representing our community, what is the one thing you would do if you were king that would get us more in line with helping law enforcement and less involved with satisfying the regulators? Yeah, again, if I could by fiat yes. call off the dogs, yes. because again, as I said up front, we are not where we should be regarding the Bank Secrecy Act. In fact, we're sort of counterintuitive. It's all about compliance. Um, I, you know, I would create a system where, where you could effectively, because you can't do it today, effectively challenge examiners without any repercussions, and I realize it's pie in the sky, not going to happen, but if you could do that, you could, you could get away from what we're doing today, which is filling in the boxes. So that's the theme, how you do it. And, and I even told the, the members last week, I said, look, I don't think you can legislate this. This is all about uh, talking, stakeholder dialogue, active. I have a lot of close friends in Washington that are in the agencies, and they'll sit and tell you, Oh, we don't subscribe to that. We train our examiners. We tell them not to make this up. You have an ombudsman. You have an appeal process. I said, none of those work. They may work in terms of process, uh, but I'll, I'll leave you with this, Bill. To, to my answer, I'm actually more optimistic than you think, but it's an example of why we need to change this according to the way Bill is describing Big Bank does aggressive anti-human trafficking work. Examiner comes in and says, God, we see all these sergeant following human trafficking, all this work. This is amazing, the training you're doing. What's your source material? Well, we look at the trafficking in persons report from the State Department. Okay, are you not looking at the UN report? Are you not looking at some other report? No. Okay, well, we need you to do a, no lie, a three-year look back. Because there are three countries on these other reports that you've not picked up because they're not in the trafficking in persons report. The banker says to me, I said, two of these countries we've never done business with. This third country, I don't even know where it is. <laughs> so they had to go through this silly process of doing that. That's the kind of information, and I did pass that along, not during the hearing, but to the staff. That's the kind of stuff we need to change. So if I was king for a day, it would be... Getting, getting rigor around the exam process in terms of the AML goals, which are information to law enforcement as quickly as possible. Thanks, everybody. I appreciate it. A lot going on in 2018, and AML Right Source is right there in the thick of things. You should understand that we are hiring. So go to our website for more information. Also, we have blogs, white papers, and other information that is essential to keep AML professionals up to date on current news. In future episodes of AML Conversations, we plan to talk to government and private sector experts in the AML 
financial crimes, and terrorist financing space. We are interested in hearing from you, so please send any of your thoughts, comments, or individuals you would like to hear us talk to to info at amlrightsource.com. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time.